Hello, I am your host, Samuel Hansen, and you are listening to Strongly Connected Components, episode 33, brought to you by AcmeScience.com. Today's episode is the second part of my conversation with Carnegie Mellon professor Stephen Rudish. This time, uh, we discuss the art of the technical lecture and Andrew's Leap, a Pittsburgh-based computer science summer camp that he runs. Here we go! Joining me today on Strongly Connect Components is a professor from Carnegie Mellon University, Stephen Rudish. Hello. Uh, Hello. I love your show, by the way. Um, I love what you're doing, and you should continue to do it. Well, thank you very much. And I want to point out, listeners, I did not pay him to say that. That's true. (laughs) I'll bill you later. Oh, Oh, well, thanks. Thanks. Uh, So I was was wondering if, if we could talk a little bit about uh, this idea of, of technical lecturing. Now, one of the courses that you do teach uh, to graduate students is a course called Technically Speaking, where you actually talk to them about the arts and the science of, of giving a technical lecture. Now, I was, I was wondering if you could explain to the people who are listening to the show uh, what exactly a technical uh, lecture isn't and why it's so important to kind of teach them these sort of mechanics behind it? Yeah, so a technical lecture has the additional challenge that there's some objective technical point that has to be contained in that gap between where you're starting, right, where people are and what you're presuming, and the end, okay, something that is rigorous, unambiguously defined. I think that, that that's a notion of technical, which applies to the wide range of science and mathematics. So people don't always write things mathematically, but when you really are speaking precisely and unambiguously, you are speaking technically. And so one is, look, talks... Other people's talks, even non-technical, are uh, often hard to understand in many ways. So technical uh, lecture, you know, you you have all the uh, challenges of talks generally, and then these additional challenges. Actually, this issue of objective content has turned out to be more problematic for students than I had originally imagined. Okay, I developed an exercise where they need to commit to what it is that they're really presuming about the audience. Technical terms that they're invoking, um, mathematical things that they're invoking, analytic things that they're invoking, operational things, right? You all know how to multiply two numbers or, you know, you all know how to take the square root of a number. Like if you say that, most people don't actually know how to take the square root of a number. Okay, so there are various things. So you want to actually commit to what you're presuming 
and then you want to commit to what you want to have actually accomplished technically at the end, but in terms of its impact on the audience, what is it the audience can now can say about the technical point? What if you want to say, oh, I want people to understand this algorithm, should they be able to actually execute the algorithm by hand at the end of the lecture? Is that what you mean? If yes, we'll try it. Okay. So this whole business of really committing to a technical goal is at the foundation of a technical talk. And it's actually been my experience that people, they have tremendous problems in committing to the content of a technical talk. For example, if you say, oh, yes, Zeno's paradoxes of motion naturally relate to an infinite sums and calculus. Okay, now, I could either start with certain things about infinite sums as a given and then show you how uh, we can apply them to Zeno's paradoxes, where the technical content is that you're, you're coming to understand the precise correspondence between various expressions you're writing down, you're writing down with sums and various words and phrases in the description of Zeno's paradoxes of motion. Or you could start with Zeno's paradoxes of motion. You could uh, presume them or, or state what they are. And then through that example, actually help motivate and define what an infinite sum is and point out how in the sense in which the infinite sum is providing a technical answer to uh, one of the puzzles of Zeno's paradoxes. Now, those are two different talks. In one, you assume A, you get B, and the other, you, get, you <laughs> assume B, you get A. And what I found is that even when a person, you know, smart grad student prepares, okay, I tell them, take any technical topic you want. I just want you to commit to what, what you're starting from and where you're going. So they come in, and they can, time after time, they actually get confused in the middle. They say things that are part of the talk where you started with Zeno's paradoxes and you got the sum, when they're giving the one where you start with the sum and you apply it to Zeno. I mean, so they're really, they're really just not committing to A implies B or B implies A at the very onset of the talk. So... A lot of what they're saying that's vague and strange, because they start hemming and hawing, because, in fact, it's not actually logical. And there's a kind of misdiagnosis that, oh, well, they're too much of an expert. They're too smart about this. And so they're so familiar with this. They understand it so well, it's hard to explain it. It's not what's going on. What's going on is, is... they really haven't fully understood it well enough to understand which statements are consistent with the flow of A implies B and which ones are consistent with B implies A. This is what an exercise I do, and this provides a surprising challenge to people. Given that you embark on a technical talk, okay, my, then I have uh, maxims that I've been working on and uh, refining over a number of years now, Presume the, the least, promise the most, pamper their brains, and provoke 
active curiosity. These are the particular maxims that, as I threw them out at the beginning of this particular semester, but I'm constantly uh, working on fiddling uh, with this. So in a technical talk, you're going to do something technical, and technical things are hard for people. And also, you have to start where people really are. Presuming the least is a huge win, okay? I mean, the fact is that it really is hard for people to recall things, even amazingly often last week's lecture somehow is hard for people to recall. So saying, okay, recall this or this, or I'm going to use this, that can be really golden, or just finding an explanation that a child could understand is even better. Okay, so where you've gotten it to some a place where you're just not using a technical vocabulary to deliver a technical point. But as so I and I'll come back to that. Now, promise the most is you want to you want to be able to do something significant. You want to be able to take as big a technical journey as you can. Presuming the least and all these things is great, but if you don't make the effort to actually get somewhere, all you've done is dumb it down. So this applies to keeping to a good syllabus and a good college class. This applies to uh, you've got to give a job interview talk. You really you do have to get somehow from A to B, and by the time you get to B, that should be pretty interesting. And you should really have managed to tell them the technical things that uh, are really important. I mean, they, they need to really come out feeling that the lecture was very substantial. And it's also been my experience, and although this is controversial among professors in math, some people feel like, well, if you're going to go give like an interview or something, or even a conference talk, well, maybe you should lose people and intimidate them at some part so that they respect your work. But I've found, actually, that people who really just make it crystal clear from beginning to end have no trouble. Their careers flourish completely, and there's really no danger of that. So presume the least, promise the most. Now, and pamper the brain is a whole elaborate thing, but the idea is, hey, our brain is a restricted resource. We don't just think for free, okay, right? And in the end, now we can actually look at people's brains, and there's an actual science to this. Even before the people had fully done the science, I knew from my own experience that if I want someone to recall a previous calculation, that takes some of their energy, if a speaker isn't speaking loud enough or something, isn't being clear enough, right, that takes some energy. You know, the, there are a lot of things that can take energy. And my rule of thumb thing was, by, from experience, it seemed kind of additive. Like, okay, you know, you, you have some strong Chinese accent, okay, okay, fine. So you're, maybe listening to you is going to take some energy, but it's additive. So it's really no worse than if you had one deficit, any other deficit, it, you know, people would just work around that. But if you have a whole bunch uh, at the same time, they add up and uh, 
statistically speaking, you don't you stop succeeding with your audience. Now, one also area here about brains is so one is there all this logic math stuff that we do. It's not natural. It's tiring. And it's even tiring for the best people, okay? It's not like I go to a conference and the sort of top people are sitting there and kind of taking everything and every talk somehow because what the hell, they're, they're pros. It's hard. You sort of, you, you pay attention to things that are especially important to you and this really depends. Did you sleep well the night before or not? It's not like, okay, Beyond a certain level of ability, people just understand everything you say. So I guess you know, one of the surprises, positive surprises in my experience is that being empathetic and caring about uh, the average student or even the better, worse than average student, uh, structuring your materials for them will actually make you more luminary for the top people. So, you know, I really didn't know that you could sort of do both. And and I discovered this by going the other direction. I sort of, I wanted to be stimulating to the top. And then after I knew I was stimulating the top, I started to kind of methodically work my way, you know, say, okay, you know, that was great. 60% of the students understood it. But what about the other, what about that bottom 40%? You know, I need to do a better job. But I found that the more thought I put into it, the more successful. But as a result, I start to draw these pictures that are that much clearer. It's only when I'm worried about that, you know, the students at the bottom, that I put that much thought into things. And then the students at the top come to me and say, you know, I had always been able to do that, da-da-da, and I won this math competition. And drew that picture, and you know, that was just... Now it's something is really effortless to me, okay? Even though I was like a champ at understanding this before, that was great. So I found out, oh, this is, this is amazing. It's sort of like having your cake and eating it too. But it, let me give an example of presuming the least and promising the most in, um, like, suppose I want to teach, you know, what, what is a proof, okay? Or... What's a proof? What's truth? Um, what's independence? What's a model theoretic independence result? So there's a lot of debate about how you teach these things. But suppose I wanted to do this to a, a five-year-old. Of course, the great thing about imagining a child as the audience is that if that's the gold standard, okay? All these things of not presuming things or really going something that your audience knows. If a child knows it, your audience knows it. Now, I happen to have a five-year-old at some point, and, well, twice, but it, anyway, and I noticed that he played Minesweeper on the computer, and, you know, I, I, I thought, oh, he, he discovered Minesweeper, and he's been playing it. And, okay, that's cool, but that's a self-consistent mathematical world. So, in fact, it's NP-complete, uh, meaning, in particular, you can actually express any mathematical puzzle in as minesweeper challenges if you allowed the board to get bigger, okay? So, it's a, a system that's a sound and complete 
the way first order logic is. What I said to my son, Isaac, was anytime you make a decision, all right, you have a reason. So if you really have a reason, you know you, you're not wrong. You, just, you know that you're absolutely not wrong. Well, then it's a theorem, okay? And your reason for the proof. So he said, oh, well, every time, you, you know, oh, I have a theorem. You know, I, this is fine. I can go there, and this is fine, and then this, and then this. I would say, great, and your proofs are your arguments that it can't be any other way. So he starts talking in this way of proof, and then he'll say, oh, here I have a theorem. Wait, I'm not sure. I said, oh, good, okay. That's a conjecture, all right? You, you think something might be true, Okay, maybe even you think you see why, but uh, no, maybe not. It's a conjecture, and then you say, oh, yes, here's the proof. Okay, so we, we start using this vocabulary, and in fact, I said to him, look, if you can't prove that something is true, if there's no proof that something is true, and there's no proof that it's false, then it's independent. In fact, there was a Minesweeper game where... He, he got to a situation where he was looking at it, and, and he said, oh, Dad, I know that there's no way to prove that this is not safe because the minds could be that way. And he said, so I, there's no proof either way, so it's independent, like you said. And, in fact, the two different patterns of minds that's a model theoretic proof that it's independent. I'm, I'm going to show you a model where it's true and a model where it's false. And I said to him, oh, my God, what do you do? And he said, oh, you just guess, silly, <laughs> which, uh, in fact, it also that corresponds to more deep mathematical insights, although I don't give him credit for the deep mathematical insights that's there. And, in fact, this paradigm that works for a five-year-old, well... If you want to sort of find a good old statement, you can frame that as an infinite family of Minesweeper examples, and, and that's a concrete model theoretic representation of Gödel's proof. The, so the point is that by really coming down to this thing of, all right, I'm going to come to where you are, even if you're a five-year-old, and I'm going to frame something, this is a, a, a perfect example of how... I can, in the case of my five-year-old, I successfully communicated a technical idea to him. He was using words with sophisticated correctness relative to the situation. And I also want to say that one of the wonderful things about some games, like Minesweeper, is, okay, what's, what's going on? He's sitting around, he's got these inference rules that he's developing. Okay, so you see this, you see that, therefore this. And some of these inference rules are correct. So you continue to use them and you see no counterexample. But if you have an incorrect inference rule, which, of course, uh, that happens, at some point, boom! They sh they, you blow up and they show you where the mines are. And that moment... The kid, even a five-year-old kid, is just glued to that pattern. Where did I go wrong? Okay, they're just intensely curious because, right, they, 
they say maybe use that rule 10 times uh, earlier. So what are they doing? They're converging to a sound deductive system. So again, to me, it's like, okay, when I really frame this idea of technical content and do it in this no-barrier way, I really can get to something universal and fun and interesting and even when you start, say, you're talking to grad students, you can say, okay, well, really, for any game you play, you can recast, you know, you can re- recast something like the Goodall's theorem in terms of an infinite set of Minesweeper patterns, you know, so that basically any, any axioms that you try to make for this Minesweeper game, there'll be some incompleteness. You get this bonus, some level of insight that the very top person is going to benefit by. So I'm ruthless about people presuming less. I mean, they give talks, they say, well, you know, you really need to know blah, and, they'll, and I'll say, oh, it's not so obvious, you really need to know blah here. And, you know, they'll explain to me why, and blah, 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 I'll say, nah, 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 and then, you know, I'll say, look, I'm going to think about this, I'll come back. And then I'll be able to, I'll explain this to you without using anything like that. Or I'll just define a few simple self-contained terms into the lecture and get something that accomplishes the same thing. So this whole level of doing a lot but being very simple. And then this business about promoting active curiosity. So Minesweeper is a fantastic example of something that inherently provokes active curiosity because it's something your, your, your kids somehow find it, right? They, they can't find, you know, the most obvious things on the computer, but somehow they find this folder and they click on Minesweeper, and even though there are no obvious instructions, they start, I mean, if they're just drawn to it, I don't, I don't even know how it works. I mean, in any case, they're drawn to it, and they're fascinated by each counterexample. They're really doing analytic work. So... I just love that quality, and of course, when people, you've done things so that someone understands the question of to be curious, you really, you get the best out of them, right? I mean, this is certainly true with students, and actually, this to me is also a way of my framing some, this is, right, there are these thorny issues of who are our math teachers deployed in, up through high school? okay, in America, and not all of them are so strong on the math part. In particular, to me, if a person who gets the wrong answer isn't curious as to why, that's a sign that they don't have content engagement. I, so I try, I, when I uh, want undergrads to understand that, say, a certain kind of reasoning is subtle, or important, you know, I'll basically put them in a situation where they'll make, they'll make explicit mistakes, experience curiosity. Oh, gee, wait, so how do you say this pro- correctly then? So then, you know, I, it's not just me saying, oh, by the way, this is subtle and important. I'm, they are actually asking me. On the other hand, if I, when I'm trying to, you know, explain methods to math teachers who are teaching somewhere and 
I ask them a question, and they all give a different answer. And then I say, well, you see, all of you gave a different answer. At most, one can be correct. You know, this may be something you teach, but it's actually quite subtle. There's only a very small number of them who experience an active curiosity as to what they did wrong. And I personally, uh, that's what stumps me. Like, I'm not sure. Basically, if somebody has that curiosity, I'll explain to them and we'll iterate, and then they'll come to have much greater understanding of what they're doing, and so they'll have, you know, they'll be better as teachers. But when they don't, to me, that, that's the puzzle. Uh, I wish I had a solution for that, but that's sort of where I'm stuck. That, that kind of brings up uh, something else, and that's your Andrews Leap program, which you actually uh, create along with Merrick First. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I guess it was like my, my first year as professor. So, you know, I've been doing it all along. Yes. So this is a summer program that it's advertised to high school students in the area. It's not a residential program, so we're not like a national thing, you know, you, and there's a test you take, and it's got a a bunch of uh, problems that are are meant to make you think, to be unfamiliar and make you think. And it also has a really fantastic name. Oh, yes, uh, right. So Andrew, well, this is Carnegie Mellon. So there's Andrew Carnegie and Andrew Mellon are the two famous American capitalists who, you know, whose union is Carnegie Mellon. So you take this leap ahead. And, and in fact, uh, at some point, I sat down with an artist and we crafted this logo that involves a dragon jumping from the world. And the dragon is part of the logo of our computer science department. So... I was actually referring to the uh, name of the test that you have all the incoming students take. The interesting test, that was something I took from maybe the Hampshire program. I mean, I just remember, I, it's not something I did. I didn't go to a program, right? When I was young, I didn't, I didn't go to any program like that. And But I heard that there was a program that had something called the interesting test. And I said, oh, that's great. So I used it. And anyway, I just, (laughs) yeah. And and of course, students do genuinely find it interesting and challenging. And, you know, it's not one of these tests that students can really answer all the questions on. I mean, so it's it's fun to give. And and then we also have uh, some younger students who just of their own initiative know about it and say they're accelerated it in various ways, and they, they can also come to the program. And, and I really recommend uh, that their professors start programs for high school students. We do it. It used to be six weeks in the summer. Now it's seven weeks. The difference between six and seven is after six weeks, kids can do a final project. So in, in the day, they, there were two hours, 10 till noon, they're learning mathematical things. I mean, theoretical view of computation and mathematics and all these wonderful things that in uh, complexity theory, cryptography, algorithms. But in the afternoon, they get to choose a hands-on track. We have different kinds of programming and view different robotics things going on, sometimes graphics. I've done some independent math research for someone who I just tell them, for a while, I tell them lots of things in math that 
are just part of the standard syllabus, and they figure it out on their own. And at some point, you know, I tell them things that are open, so they get to actually know what it's like to even talk about something that no one knows the answer to. Anyway, they do something hands-on. So after seven weeks, people can actually have projects that actually work. After six weeks, they don't. This is just one piece of knowledge I'm giving as an oracle for anyone who's going to run a program. I think that's a human universal. Also in the program, we have a guest lecture in the afternoon on many of the days. Okay, So it's somebody, I think someone comes at yeah, 3.30, and it's somebody do it talking about some project or research in the department or in the university, you know, from hands-on, hear my soccer-playing robots, watch them run around, you know, just someone coming in and saying, here's, I, I have this faster algorithm for blah, and here's some explanations of what I'm doing, and da-da-da. But as a consequence, they get to really meet lots of different faculty, lots of different researchers. They really actually get a glimpse of what research in computer sciences broadly and they kind of get constant exposure to the message, uh, which is, look, there's so many questions that you could start thinking about now. You know, there's so many projects you can do. There's so many, there's, all, there's a whole world of smart people engaged in these great things, and anything that actually inspired you, you can go make the connection. And say, you know, you, you just really loved something, the soccer playing robots or whatever, and, you know, you volunteer as a something in that, in that group, you know, some, you do some kind of programming, some kind of this, that, the other thing, or whatever it is, but, you know, you're getting, you just start to get your hands-on experience, and it's this big leg up, I mean, because you're thinking more like a researcher. I mean, essentially, when you're in high school, and you get to think about something as if you were a researcher and, and to get role modeling in that mode, it's really empowering. And this is why I recommend this to everyone. I never expected that this program would have the level of impact that it does. So, I mean, I knew it, it would always be fun. It would always go well. I didn't know that a place as small as Pittsburgh could consistently, I mean, Pittsburgh has gone of, I mean, the whole surrounding area, it's like a million people. From Pittsburgh, there's just all these people who went to Andrews Lieb, who went to, like, some really great PhD program and faculty at great places. I mean, it's as if we have something in the water, which, you know, of course, isn't true. What's true is, I'm very into it, I talk a good game, and I'm very passionate, but they get this really empowering message and they get to, like I say, start thinking conceptually and start thinking about doing some actual creative original thing. And uh, I guess what I wouldn't have known is that somehow it, it's, it's like a multiplicative effect, okay? It's like, there might, you know, there's surely, right, students who are more rare from everywhere in the country that's not Pittsburgh, for example. Okay, and yet, in a given year at MI, in the MIT PhD program in computer science, I might see three kids who are going to go to MI, the MIT uh, PhD program, and that's actually more than most countries. 
you know, get into the MIT page. I take MIT because it's no circular logic about admitting people because they went to Andersley. And in any case, I really think also one of the reasons that this has the effect it has is no one else seems to do this in other things. I mean, the physics guys don't do this and so on. So uh, students get this really positive experience and they feel really empowered and I guess, and they make all these decisions. Also, lots of great students have decided to come to Carnegie Mellon as a consequence. Also something that, <laughs> given that I was part of the generation where you went to college and as far away from your parents as possible, it had never even occurred to me that people would say, oh, well, I'm having this great experience. So basically, you're somewhere, you're at some university, you do these kinds of things, and you'll get bright people from you know, the area who will stay, and it's just really rewarding, and it's good for the community also. It's, it's like getting to be a parent or something. I, I mean, college students, are, it's, they're, they're highly motivated. It's, like, really expensive, and they're really worried about their grades, and they're, like, super responsible. And I mean, high school students, you know, they're still more like kids. Like you, and that's why you have this gigantic impact on their lives. There's there's no competing agenda or something. So it's just gone like a dream. And also another counterintuitive thing is that for many years, we would hire faculty, like faculty and grad students to do a lot of the teaching. But then actually when the, it was the dot-com boom, faculty and grad students were no longer available for this sort of thing. I mean, they were just sort of the opportunity cost was sort of so high. So what happened is Andrew's Leap students started to become the staff and the teachers. So I wasn't sure how that was all going to go. But actually, that's just been fantastic. I mean, what's happened is essentially students who are, you know, are quite strong intellectually who impress you at whatever they're doing. And then, of course, to have some additional kind of staff maturity, you invite to be staff, and they get to actually start teaching. And so some of these students, especially who come really young, they just, they're in love with it, and they just start teaching, and they're year to year, and they have all this teaching experience, and they just go in they're going to college already with a real notion of what it is to teach. I mean, to develop your a curriculum, you know, to think about improving a lecture. And, and then these students are also going and, like, winning teaching awards. I, it's just, in the end, it's all really worked out. So now almost all staff are former students, and that works really, really well. And, you know, a lot of people have been interested in, like a lot of countries, like I've been to India and Japan, a lot of people are interested in ways to stimulate their bright kids. When you go anywhere but the U.S., uh, people have a whole elaborate idea of why this is really part of why they're going to make it in the world, is they're going to up the ante on how well they educate the average person technically, and they want to emulate programs that help inspire and develop talent, you know, when, it, when they're younger. And, and, you know, 
I mean, in the U.S., we're interested in this sort of thing in principle, but so far not, you know, not so much in fact. One way or another, I, I think we'll we'll get on uh, board. But anyway, so it, it's just it's something that a lot of people are are interested in, and for me as a teacher, it has been a an, a real pleasure in a couple uh, ways. So one is we don't do credit, and you know maybe the demands or expectations of students will change, but for now. There are plenty of students who are interested in coming to the program, even though we don't give credit. But it means that they're there because they think it's just the most interesting way to spend their summer. And it, it also means that I can be bold about what I'm lecturing on. I don't have to worry if they can't understand. Like, you know, I get, I get to explore and be ambitious because of this two-sided thing of, gee, I do like, I love the idea of, having this group where I can essentially presume nothing, really, beside arithmetic. But I, I want to do so much. They're just, I want people to leave um, understanding, well, the P&D question and undecidability and, you know, having seen some really counterintuitive killer fast algorithms and understanding the depth of thought in mathematics for cryptography. I mean, there's just so much stuff. It's so great. And in fact, part of what I've accomplished as a teacher at the undergraduate level is really a privilege of having done this program because I succeeded in explaining things to kids. I knew that undergraduates could understand it. I developed and I used to teach a course called Great Theoretical Ideas in Computer Science it's now a requirement of all our CS majors. They take it either the freshman year or sophomore year. So now it's part of the bread and butter courses for your, each major. You, you come to understand that there's a theoretical computer science, the way physics students come to understand that there's a theoretical physics. You come to understand that there's a theoretical perspective that has a wonderful vocabulary in which you can frame the big picture of what you're doing. And similarly in physics, you, when you, you, know, when you can't explain what the different paradigms of thought are uh, without being technically specific in some way. And at the time, we were teaching, and in fact everyone else was also really teaching a lot of the cool ideas sort of junior and senior year, Okay, and you kind of leave, you see, you know, you see things like P&T and all this. And that was all fine, but to me, it's so much easier to learn. I mean, as a student, when you have an orienting framework for what you're learning. So, like, I, like many math majors, went to my math classes. But the question, what is mathematics? Well... I was only able to really understand that kind of in retrospect, okay, you know, each field is sort of based on some notion of what zero is. So really I can characterize different fields in terms of what they consider zero, you know. And, uh, like I, I had some idea of like what mathematics is or, you know, why, you know, why is it that it breaks into this and this and this? Why is it that this specific domain is still interesting, whereas this 
if this specific thing is some boring small thing, right? That's one of the wonderful things about math that some specific questions sound sound really boring, but actually encode exactly the fundamental puzzle of all area. Anyway, so I wanted students to be able to have an orienting vocabulary to frame all the ideas they were learning in their education. Because, well, because <laughs> that's what I wanted, so. And then it turned out it went well. But the only reason that I had the confidence to think I mean, at first, I wasn't thinking even of it as a requirement. I, I just started teaching the classes, experimental thing, and enrollment just kept growing. But, you know, basically, I had, because I had that proving ground of uh, the high school program, I had really refined my ideas and simplified my explanations to everything so as to presume very little. In fact, there were some things that I would do for undergrads where I got to the point where I can do them for a fifth, the same lecture for a fifth grade public school class. So it, it went very well, and, and in fact, that's now generally how majors in computer science work. You have some class that does this, and it, it's a great laboratory. When you start being a professor, you know, there's all sort of kind of responsibilities, like, oh my God, and like I said, it's like, God, these kids are like paying a quarter million dollars, I mean, for their, an undergrad education, you know, uh, it's like, God, I, I mean, that's a lot, that's a lot to live up to, and you, you've got, it's just, it's very consuming to sort of deliver, you know, the kind of level of teaching and responsiveness and care to students, and can be hard to be innovative, so... By doing the summer program, I really got to be innovative in the way I did things. And it's, again, part of why I so enthusiastically recommend it to other people. Okay, well, that's, that's brilliant, actually. I, I want to thank you so much for coming on to Strongly Connect Components. Oh, pleasure. And that is it for today's episode of Strongly Connected Components. If you want to find out more about our guest, Stephen Rudish, please head on over to acmescience.com, where you can also find out some information about the irreverent mathematical talk show, Combinations and Permutations, as well as a look into 80s sci-fi, Sam and Dan and... You can send me an email, samuel at acmescience.com, which is my real, actual, personal... I check it every day, email address, so you can be sure that I will read your email and there is a 99.9 .9 repeating percent chance that I will also email you back. The music on today's episode started with Pie by Hard and Firm off their album Horses and Grasses and this music I'm talking over right now is from SP12. You can find them over at opsound.org. This podcast, like all of the others by Acme Science, is a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike licensed podcast. So please feel free to completely delete my voice out of this so you don't have to hear it. Just be sure you said you got it from acmescience.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope that you stay tuned for another episode of Strongly Connected Components.